I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I don't want to live with seniors. Like, seniors are wonderful. I'm a senior. But I need the diversity of young people, children. You know, I'm I'm not in a rocking chair, even though I have one. Dorothy Began is 75. She's not keen on moving. And a lot of people are like her. They're also staying put. So what does this mean for retirement homes? Hi, I'm Paul Havertrud. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Retirement homes depend on seniors wanting to move in. Now, they're struggling to fill empty space. There are a lot of Dorothys out there, happy where they are. At the same time, rental vacancies are at an all-time low. So renters can't find places to live, and retirement homes have space. Hmm. Yeah, probably nothing to see there. Also today, imagine winning the lottery. That's like the dream. The anxiety dream version of that... Winning and not claiming the prize. That scenario is unfolding in New Brunswick as we speak. 64 million bucks. So what happens now? Up first, nuclear energy is having a moment. A lot of big plans and big promises are being made. But but we've heard this before. So is nuclear really about to be our energy salvation? Would you live next to a nuclear power plant? Maybe that makes you think of Fukushima and three-eyed fish from The Simpsons. Or you could be like, heck yeah, absolutely. We need a clean source of power to fight climate change. Or maybe you're more ambivalent. Because the nuclear debate can get muddy. And so can thinking your way through it. That's where Umreen Sodi was at, right before she moved next to a nuclear plant. That was the top of mind aspect when he moved to Pickering, because I think one of the questions I asked my realtor, hey, why is this area? It's probably the same distance as Mississauga to downtown Toronto, but why are the prices low? Which was making it affordable for us. So The answer was that because there's been a power station, nuclear power plant, there's general concerns around safety. And so that's why it's not appreciated as much. That was five years ago. She and her husband were expecting their first child and wanted more space than a downtown Toronto condo. Pickering checked a lot of boxes. They weren't wild about living beside a nuclear plant, but they liked the house and the price was right. Now, they're full-on Pickeringites. We go to the waterfront a lot, like most people who live at Pickering. 
that's right next to the power plant by the way like if you're at that waterfront you turn to your left and you see the power plant and obviously at the waterfront it's like a full full beaming with families kids people are like 500 meters from it Pickering's nuclear plant has been there since 1971 it's Canada's oldest it's about an hour from downtown Toronto and now that it's part of Umbreen's day to day I think about it this way you know how they say that Flights are more safe in terms of accidents than driving, and we drive every day. So I think about that. Like if <laughs> if ever something happens, it's gonna be like all of GTA anyway. Impact it won't be like just Pickering, and then uh, so it's like e- either you live in GTA anywhere, it's the same kind of risk. But the probability is so low. Obviously, there's data to support that. There's nothing been no- nothing ever happens. Well, not nothing. Some bad stuff can happen. Mostly, though, Amrina's right. Nuclear just quietly hums along. She's come to terms with it. And if more nuclear is on the way, Canadians may have to figure out where they stand. A big headline to come out of COP28, the UN's latest climate change gathering, was a renewed commitment to nuclear energy. 22 countries, including Canada, want to triple nuclear power generation by 2050. Ontario is committing billions to refurbish its existing fleet, and maybe even build new reactors. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and New Brunswick have teamed up to push nuclear. They want more in their electricity grids, and think the rest of the world should too. But the thing about nuclear? It's complicated. For every little argument in favor for, for nuclear, you have an equally compelling argument against it. Ryan Katz-Rosine studies the debates and politics of climate change. He's a professor at the University of Ottawa. For a long time, knowing where you stood on nuclear was straightforward. If you were part of the Green Movement in the 1970s, you probably didn't like it. You were worried about nuclear waste, radiation, weapons testing. Now... Climate change has changed the conversation. All of a sudden, you start seeing people switch and say, wait a minute, this is a low-carbon technology, and maybe it isn't as risky as, as we thought, and maybe the risks are, are you know, manageable and, and are far less than the risks of climate change. So maybe we need to rethink our position on nuclear. Nuclear is so divisive, even the environmental movement is split. One can't believe zero emissions make it worth the risk. Others aren't ready to wave away worries about reactor meltdowns, nuclear proliferation, and radioactive waste. And those kinds of Cold War-era concerns aren't even their biggest arguments against it. They say nuclear can't be built fast enough to help with climate change, and it's too expensive. Nuclear projects routinely run billions over budget and can be delayed for years even decades. They call any time and money spent on nuclear a distraction that takes away from what can be done today to make electricity grids greener. Renewables and storage are just so fundamentally cheap, and solar in particular is just getting cheaper and cheaper. It's the cheapest energy in history, and capacity is growing and growing and growing, and so all of a sudden you start saying, well, if cost and time are really what's at play here for mitigating climate change and avoiding the worst case scenarios, avoiding two degrees or more of warming, 
then it's a no-brainer. Just focus your efforts on renewables and, and put your eggs in that basket and improve storage capacity. And that's sort of one of the, one of the leading arguments against nuclear. So why bother with a big, expensive nuclear plant when solar is right there? Well, the pro-nuclear argument says you still need a steady source of power generation. This is known as firming the grid, making sure electricity generation has a backstop. Because when they look at the idea of relying on something like solar... They would question both uh, the, some of the arguments around how cheap renewables are when you bring in firming costs and when you... Uh, bring into account, take into account the need for this baseload power, like when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, right? Once you flip it on, a nuclear plant just pumps out megawatts. The industry also thinks it can fix two of nuclear's biggest drawbacks, the long lead times and cost overruns that come with building full-scale plants. Small modular reactors, or SMRs. The pitch is they're cheaper and faster to build. They're also not all that real yet. Only four exist in the world, two in Russia and two in China, and we don't know how well they're working. A project in Utah was supposed to prove the technology and the economics of SMRs, but after years of delays and spiraling cost estimates, the company behind it, NewScale, just pulled the plug. Of the 32 countries with nuclear power, Canada's electricity generation puts us near the top. And it all comes from just four sites. Bruce, Darlington, and Pickering in Ontario, and Point Le Pro in New Brunswick. Those provinces are now doubling down on nuclear. And others, Saskatchewan and Alberta, want in. So nuclear is gaining traction with more governments. And polling, like one by Ipsos last fall, shows public support is going up. You can drive by on, on, on the 401 and you're basically driving by one of Canada's biggest nuclear power stations and it's very kind of in the background innocuous and there's, you know, what, 30,000 people that live like in proximity to it. And it, it just kind of, it's there, it's in the background, it's, it doesn't raise alarm. The idea of splitting a few atoms and unlocking limitless energy can sound like a good idea. But then Fukushima happens. When, when it goes wrong... It's very visible, it's the, the, this kind of the risk factor, it goes from like zero to 10. Public acceptance of nuclear has ebbed and flowed along with every Chernobyl or Fukushima. But it's been 13 years since that happened. And those memories are fading. Nuclear again has momentum. What will that mean for a world that's quickly going electric? We know countries are pledging to triple nuclear generation. That sounds like a massive expansion, but actually the expectation is we're going to expand electric, electricity capacity by uh, a factor of three by 2050 anyway. So all things being equal, you know, tripling nuclear power capacity might not actually look very different in terms of its share of, of uh, you know, the electricity grid in the future, depending on how things roll out. If the idea of living next to a nuclear plant makes you squidgy, well, Ryan Katz-Rosine doesn't think you need to worry about SMRs suddenly dotting the horizon. I don't think we're going to see this sort of like massive nuclear renaissance in the idea that it's going to take over and be our, our primary, you know, source of energy. 
anytime soon. But at the same time, I, I don't think nuclear is, is going away. I do think it's going to grow. I do think uh, nuclear capacity is going to grow. And so I, I think the, the future is probably going to be along the middle ground. For all the talk about nuclear right now, he says it's not a silver bullet that will solve climate change. But that doesn't mean it's going to split anytime soon. Get it? Split? Like the atom? Oh, come on. On your Radio N by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Remember the TV show 24? Jack Bauer, played by Kiefer Sutherland, racing against the clock. Something like that is kind of playing out right now. But it's less, we must save the president, and more real life. One Canadian is sitting on a $64 million lottery ticket. But they may not know it's a winner. Will they claim it? And what happens if they don't? Bro, it's $64 million. And as our producer Jen Keen explains, the clock is ticking. When news got out that a $64 million ticket had been bought in Gloucester County, New Brunswick, it was all anyone could talk about. At the beginning, it was crazy. It was, everyone was wondering who had the lucky ticket. Um, there was just all kinds of different rumors. Marlene Legacy owns the Last Stop convenience store, just outside of Bathurst. The first rumor that ever came out was the rumor of that it was a group of people from Walmart that won it, um, but they weren't able to claim it right away. Then they thought it was someone from out of town. So somebody that was passing through just happened to stop at a, a little convenience or someone bought a lottery ticket at one of the stores. It's been 10 months now since someone bought that winning ticket. If you win big in Canada, you have to go public. You know, take a picture with the big check. So Tony Batanti with Ontario Lottery and Gaming says it's not unusual for people to wait a while. I mean, usually our winners for these big amounts take a couple of months, maybe three or four months to come in because they want to talk to a lawyer, financial advisor, get their affairs in order before they do come and claim uh, those, those big life-changing amounts of money. Lottery winners have one year to claim their prize, and it's rare that anyone waits that long. Except that one guy who waited to the last minute so he could finalize his divorce and cheat his wife out of the money. It didn't work. If the clock is ticking and the prize is big enough, lottery officials will launch a PR campaign and they'll go to great lengths to find the winner. Like in Ontario about a decade ago when a $50 million ticket was about to expire. And it was, it was very lucky for us that we had the video from the store that the ticket was sold. And it happened to be, in this case, a shopper's drug mart. And on that video, we saw that the person actually bought their ticket with a credit card and used the loyalty card for Shoppers Drug Mart as well. Tony says they cross-referenced the video with the cards and the winner got the cash, even though she'd lost the ticket. 
Millions in lottery winnings go unclaimed in Canada every year, mostly small prizes, but not always. Imagine winning $70 million in the lottery and not knowing about it until it was too late. That could be the painful reality for someone. Last summer, despite all the lottery officials' efforts, a $70 million ticket just went poof. We had over 2,700 people say that that ticket was theirs, and we investigated every one of those 2,700 people, and in the end, no one had all the information, and no one came forward with that ticket. When that happens, the money goes back into the kitty for future lotteries. So how do you keep that from happening to you? Put those tickets in a secure location. Put them in, uh, on the refrigerator with a magnet so you can see it, or in, a, in a, an envelope in the junk drawer, but you know that it's there. And if you're really bad at keeping tabs on tiny slips of paper, you can always buy your ticket online. Whoever purchased the $64 million ticket in Gloucester County has two months left to search their junk drawer. But time is running out. Like, it'd be sad for whoever does have that ticket. Can you imagine um, finding the ticket after the date? Like, you only have a year to claim it. So imagine someone had it tucked away in their drawer in their jacket pocket and didn't realize till after the date. That would be so sad. For the cost of living, I'm Jennifer Keene. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a place to rent these days can be like spotting a great gray owl in the wild. Like, is it even real? The national vacancy rate is at a record low 1.5%. Rents are up nearly 10% in the last year. But, Alice Cho, you say there are places out there that are like the great gray owl of rentals? (laughs) There are. They're rare, but there are some places going out of their way to attract people. Like, how does three months free rent sound, Paul? Oh, pretty good. (laughs) That's for a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment in Perth, Ontario, in a building that has a saltwater pool and a pickleball court. Well, I'd like to try pickleball, but I also feel like there has to be a catch here. (laughs) You're right. You have to be of a certain age because it's in a retirement home. Are you saying it's time for me to hang up the microphone, Ellis? Not quite. You don't quite qualify. Retirement homes, unlike the rest of the rental scene, have more supply than demand right now. I looked at places across the country, and lots of them are offering the kind of move-in incentives you don't see anywhere else. Now, the vacancy rate varies across the country, but the biggest retirement home operator in Canada is Chartwell, with 160 properties. And they have about a 15% vacancy rate right now. 
Well, you're not going to find many for rent apartments with a 15% vacancy rate. I mean, the national average is like, you know, just over 1%. So retirement homes do have space. But when you say retirement home, what exactly do you mean? Well, sometimes they're called independent living or assisted living. They're typically in these low-rise apartment complexes. You know, there's usually a, a common dining room. There's social and fitness programs. And some of them can be pretty shishi. I went to one that had a putting green. So I can work on my short game and I can play pickleball. <laughs> but this is not enough to get more people to move in. Why aren't these places full? There's a couple of reasons. And the first one was the pandemic. Arlene Adamson is with a group of seniors housing operators in Alberta. She says vacancies in retirement homes spiked because nobody was allowed to move into them. And then... The greater issue was the public perception through all the media that the, these were not safe places to move. Um, so there, is a, there was and still is a bit of a residual belief that, you know, these are not necessarily safe places. So she's suggesting retirement homes got a bad rap? Yes. And she also said people are still confused between the difference between a retirement home and a long-term care home. And one of the differences being that seniors in retirement homes, they're more active. Exactly. Seniors these days are healthier. They're living longer. And moving into a retirement home isn't their first choice. We've seen this trend grow over the past 30 years where seniors want to stay in their own homes. Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Dorothy began at 75. She lives in a three-bedroom house, works part-time at a travel agency, and she has just dyed her hair purple. Like, why not? You know, it, I didn't even think twice. <gasps> What's everyone going to say? <gasps> How can somebody my age, a silly old lady? No, it's avant-garde. How does the purple look on her? It looks fabulous. <laughs> She's lived in her house for more than 40 years, and she has no plans to move out. I still have my mobility, and that's important. I have the support of my children. Uh, I have fabulous neighbors. Uh, they just, they take care of me as if I'm the godmother of the neighborhood. She's the OG on her block. <laughs> you know, her neighbors mow her lawn, shovel her walk, and she loves her house. The family room, this is where I spend most of my time. She spends most of her time in just three rooms. As my son says, Mom, you should sell it and let a nice family move in. And I said, nope, don't have anywhere to go. She's like a lot of seniors who are just staying put. Francis Cordellino is an economist at CMHC. He says nearly 80% of seniors in their late 70s are looking around at their options and deciding not to sell. But because there is not a lot of supply on the market, they don't know what they would do, so they basically staying in their homes. I would say that the lack of supply kind of create that lack of supply. So that's a problem uh, uh, that we're seeing on the market right now, that there's not, not a lot of options, so people uh, are just waiting uh, before eventually selling if they don't have a, any other options. Yeah, millennials and Gen Zs, especially people in the market looking for homes, they know all about this. They would tell you all about this. People just aren't moving out. Yeah, so don't hold your breath for a ton of houses to come on the market anytime soon. According to Francis, most people who own their homes don't sell until they're in their 90s. I can just hear people in their 30s sighing in exasperation. They're looking for a bungalow. They can't find one because, you know, a lot of people are doing exactly what Dorothy's doing. Yeah. And as for a retirement home for Dorothy? Absolutely not. 
absolutely not. I don't want to live with seniors. Like, seniors are wonderful. I'm a senior. But I need the diversity of young people, children. That gives me a vitality that I love. You know, I'm still energetic. I'm still hip. You know, I'm not I'm not in a rocking chair, even though I have one. Yeah, so she likes her rocking chair. She just likes to rock in her own house. And <laughs> she does. She's hip. Well, yeah, 70. It's the new 50. <laughs> so people are feeling younger. They see themselves as young. They're not selling their houses. Where does this leave retirement homes? They're working on changing what the public thinks about them, and they're offering these discounts. And they're trying to attract younger seniors with better amenities like spas, wellness programs, more exciting activities, not just bridge, but whitewater rafting. And some are getting creative with their empty space. What floors are you on? Uh, we're on three, so we're just over 350, oh, okay. 353. We're going to the pub now, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm going. We had a hard day's training this morning. Brett Sargon, he's 32, and he's living in a retirement residence right now. Why? He's a curler from New Zealand, and he came to Calgary to train, but he couldn't find a place to rent. So shared their story on social media, and he heard back from a local retirement residence. It's a really community, community-based community um, feel here. There's a lot of social um, things that are going on within the residence as well. Um, as mentioned, we're about to head down to happy hour after this, and we always hear some really cool stories there and meet some really interesting people. Um, and So he's at happy hour with seniors. He seems happy enough. Retirement homes have the space. Could they open themselves up to more non-seniors, just the general public, people looking to rent? It's hard to say. That's not their business model right now. But there are retirement homes where university students are part of the mix. The students volunteer and get cheap rent in return. And there's a new organization that just started up in Calgary that's trying to make that a regular thing across Canada. Well, would that mean anything for someone like a Dorothy Began? Like, would it change her mind if retirement homes weren't just full of retirees? I'm not sure it would. I have no desire to, to leave. I've got a connection. I've got uh, more space than I need, definitely. But I don't want to be in a, a box. I like to have the, the opportunity of roaming wherever I want to go, you know, um, yeah, I, I like to have the choice. So she's happy where she is. She has room. She can stretch out. You know, it sounds like it's going to take more than just pickleball to get her to go anywhere. A lot more. Maybe a, maybe a wave pool. <laughs> Water slide. <laughs> Thanks, Els. You're welcome. Would you move into a retirement home if you're of retirement age or even if you're not? Let us know. Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. And while we're asking questions, do you have any questions for us? Anything about business or the economy keeping you up at night? In the past, you've asked everything from why does craft beer come in tall cans to why can it be cheaper to ship something from Shanghai than Saskatoon? We have a Q&A show coming up next week. So if you have a question, hit us up. We'll try to get you an answer. Our number again is 1-866-550-COST or email costofliving at cbc.ca. Well, that's all for this week. 
The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Special thanks this week go to CBC Toronto's Andrew Nguyen. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haverstrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.